So let's start talking about the, the story, the Ray Bradbury one. We are reading this because a mistake I made. On one of the discussions that we were discussing a few months ago about the Bradbury story, I think it was you if any other one that shows that story, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I downloaded the book and read the first story of the of the book and it was a different story. It was the foghorn, which was not the one that we were talking about that day. So I liked it. I actually liked it more than the one that we were reading uh, for that discussion. So I decided to do a discussion later on, and this time is now. Um, Ray Bradbury was an American author. We all know him. He was also a screenwriter. He worked in a variety of uh, genres, including fantasy, science fiction, horror, uh, mystery fiction, uh, everything. And uh, predominantly known for writing the um, iconic dystopian novel Fahrenheit. Uh, 451 that we all, all know from 1955 and uh, well also because of his science fiction and horror story collections. Uh, he died in uh, 2012 and uh, the New York Times called him the writer most responsible for bringing modern science fiction into the literary mainstream. Um, this story, the one that we are talking about today, it's called The Foghorn, but the original title of the story was The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and it was published in the Saturday Evening Post in 1951. So let's talk about it. We are going to do the, the usual round of uh, opinions to break the ice for starters. The first person in my screen is Andrea. Andrea, what did you think about the story? Did you like it? Uh, yeah, I really like it actually. Um, it gave me a lot of uh, Lovecraft vibe. I was thinking all the time about that <laughs> at the beginning. But the the end actually, it was softer than what, that I was expecting maybe because in my head it was Lovecraft all the time. <laughs> but because you expect some kind of like mysterious creature coming up from the sea and at the end it's like, no, but it's a dinosaur, it's the light of the sky, it doesn't know what what it's doing, he thinks the lighthouse is talking to 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 him, so it's like it, it was more like gender than <laughs> I was expecting. But even though like I, I really like it the story. Cool. And uh, Jessica, what did you think about it? Um, well, th this is the thing about expectations, yeah, because I saw Ray Bradbury again, I thought, ah, nah, so, and, um, um, but I actually really like this one. I thought I wasn't going to, and, you know, what, what, the opposite of what usually happens to me and with Ray Bradbury. Um, right. so sad, so sad, so sad, I almost cried. Um, uh, the, I don't know, the, the sadness, the, the loneliness, Mm, the feeling is is captured very well, I thought. Um, and uh, yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised, actually. I was thinking, you know, because we've we've discussed uh, Ray Bradbury being the the origin of the butterfly effect and something else. I can't remember what it was. And now I'm thinking, oh my God, he's going to be the Loch Ness monster creator too. But he's, <laughs> the Loch Ness monster is is um, is earlier, is much earlier. Right. Anyway, yeah, I I liked it a lot. 
Nice, thank you. Eugenia, did you like it? I really liked it. Um, I was the one who <laughs> proposed the other Bradbury short story. So um, I was, of course, going to compare the two after what, <laughs> what happened. And the other one um, holds a very special place in my heart. I really liked it. But this one was more surprising because um, I, I didn't expect what was going to happen. I, I went in not knowing anything. I got very... Uh, Nessie vibes right from the start of the story just like Jessica was like yeah Nessie is going to appear and people are going to photograph him and and, and then the legend is born <laughs> but, um, and it, it really reminded me I don't know if if um, it has happened to any of you but it really reminded me of uh, the other short story that we read um, that journey of the of the dragon horse <laughs> Because it's about uh, a creature's uh, search for for companionship, for love, for for friendship, for for some someone akin to him and and or it. So uh, that really spoke to me because it um, it was written in such yeah I think Andrea said it in such a tender way and I was like yeah poor monster he's alone and <laughs> he wants someone to understand him and and uh, he he's like lured by this by this lighthouse and and then it's like expectations versus reality that lighthouse isn't what he was looking for and what he thought when he followed that the sound so uh, i really think it's not so much to me a, a short story but more of like a single moment in time it's not it doesn't have any conclusion it, to me, it's just a depiction of a certain moment. It it comes and it goes. It, it doesn't have any closure for me, but it's fine because <laughs> it, it it really it really was enough for me. I really liked it. I want to rate it. So that's that's my feedback. Thank you. Uh, hi, Eric. Did you like the story? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, sorry. I absolutely love this story, and uh, for me, this story is uh, like a white uh, waking nightmare, and uh, I mean in that in the best possible uh, way. Uh, just like Jessica said, uh, for me, it's a story about loneliness, and it's about utter, utter loneliness and grief, and how uh, a person or a uh, human being or any um, biological creature is suffering, suffering from the loneliness and uh, is uh, uh, the, the, the most horrible part of this is that this uh, person or uh, living creature does not have any light at the end because he is the only one left on the earth very deep under the sea and uh, there is no healing power of connection which is awaiting for this creature even in million years. I mean, he's destined to be, he or she is destined to be here alone. And that's the, that's the nightmare part of this. And um, I mean, I'm a hardcore agnostic. I, I don't believe in afterlife or anything like that. But uh, when I was reading this story, uh, I... I was under very deep poetic 
uh, feeling that maybe there is something after we are dead. So that's very strange, but I absolutely love this story. It's amazing. All right, uh, thank you. Uh, Colin, did you like it? Yeah, I like the story. It was different than I thought it would be. It's kind of like uh, when I, especially when I, uh, they mentioned the monster, I thought, oh, it's going to be some horror story. There's going to be gore and violence, but, but it actually reminded me more of a, like a tragic love story, you know, unrequited love and yeah, loneliness. And yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was quite different. Thank you. Uh, Mary, did you Hello. like the story? Hi. Yeah, I think I'll reintroduce myself. Um, Adrian, I came to uh, some of your, your meetups in 2015. I was wow. living in Madrid in, uh, for three months near Retiro Park, so near where one of you lives. And I loved it. I loved it. And I went to two different... Um, book clubs in Madrid for the three months. And I went to yours, I think twice at some little bar over towards the university. I don't know, upstairs at some little bar. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm back just for this time. I'm so glad you're doing it um, um, this way, virtual. Uh, I'm sitting in the US, uh, pretty confined here. And I miss all, all of the world uh, very much. Uh, so this is great to be able to do this. Um, so um, I do agree in the sadness of the story. And um, I think it kind of fits the times right now of uh, trying to find ways of commute to communicate and make connections with people, which we're doing today. But it's, it's hard. And uh, I think we feel really cut off. In a lot of ways, like um, just like uh, our 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 monster. So I agree with a lot of the comments about um, you know um, loneliness, disconnection. Um, I feel sad for the our, our monster. But one thing I liked, I liked the um, main light keeper, um, how he was so accepting of the month of the monster coming. And talking to his co-worker about, oh, I have something to show you. And, and just being very accepting of this meeting with this other creature so unlike themselves. Um, I, I, I just liked, I liked him very much. All right. Thank you. Um, I, I'm trying to remember, in 2015... I don't know if we were already meeting at the Residencia Estudiantes or it was, maybe we were... If it's a bar upstairs, it's probably JJ's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, could be. Hmm. I have a couple pictures from, from there. Uh, maybe I'll send send one out later. But anyway, yeah. I, I've been, I had been living um, three months in different cities and I always joined the book clubs in Paris and Lisbon and Madrid. And I got to live one different place every year for three months. And so I'm, like I said, I'm really uh, missing all of, all of my international book clubs. And I'm in two book clubs here and only one of us are meeting and the others I haven't seen anybody for three, three, four months. Yeah. Hmm. 
Oh, it's cool that now the technology is allowed to do this uh, online, mm -hmm. and then we can keep talking about about books. Okay, let's continue the round. Mo, uh, what did you think about the story? Um, uh, I don't know. It was okay. I liked the concept a lot. Um, it definitely wasn't what I was in the mood to read right now. Um, I agree with everybody with about, I mean, the loneliness and the, the sadness. I like the concept of it, that this monster was, or whatever monster, this creature was feeling that way and trying to reach out. It's a lovely theme, but yeah, it's not like, like, no, I'm already like buried this deep. I can't handle it anymore right now. So, um, I have to give it another go in a different moment. Um, I've re read a lot of like lighthouse stories, like like creatures around lighthouses. Like I feel like it's its own little subgenre. Um, so this one for me, I, of course, I had to compare it to all the other ones, and it's probably somewhere in the middle. Like there's ones I like a lot more, but it was definitely better than some. So yeah. What well, what weird subgenres you discover most <laughs> creatures around lighthouses like, there's a lot of stories that are creatures you know the context why on earth are you reading <laughs> i don't <laughs> see them out in particular it's just i've come across a lot of them yeah actually i'm, re I'm remembering now that the first discussion that this book club had back in 2013 was about a lighthouse being attacked by monsters from the sea, uh, a Spanish book from a Catalan author. So, yeah, there's some. Never heard of it. Yeah, seems yeah. to be a lot, a lot of yes. this. Piel fría, oh, yeah. Piel fría. All the skin. Yeah, they later yeah. did a, a Hollywood movie. Okay, so thank you, uh, Margot. Did you like it? Um. Yeah, for me it was so okay. As yeah, I was thinking about it was I was connecting with uh, the Annihilation book, but it's not that similar to Annihilation. But now I just realized, oh, there's a big lighthouse. <laughs> so yeah, I guess it's part of the lighthouse the genre connection. Um, yeah, I found myself a bit between Mo and Eugenia's opinion. I think um, also I had a, I read it right before the call before this one. And I had to go kind of quickly, so maybe I couldn't like sit in the sad like pathos and sadness so much because when I was reading it I I also I I kept sticking with MacDunn um seemed to know that the creature was gonna knock the attack the tower so I'm like why why you why you there why you why you half killing your co-worker or like I got stuck on that but I really really like the description like the whole page where the creature is rising from the ocean and the foghorn blaring and I thought that was fantastic I just really enjoyed that scene um yeah and, and also I, I felt some things were maybe just said very outright like instead of letting it marinate kind of um just McDonough was telling us directly how to interpret the whole thing which I don't know I I think we could have done it done without it but yeah, but yeah, I liked it. And it's my first Ray Bradbury short story. It was cool. Cool. And uh, Jake, I don't know if you can hear us, if you can talk. Jacob? 
Yes. All right. Hello, everybody. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, my uh, let me get my see if I can get my camera on because hmm. I want to see my fellow um, brothers and sisters over there in Spain. So let's see. Can I? Can you guys? Uh, there you go. Can you guys see me? Yeah. yeah. Now we can. Yes. So, all right. So. Hello, everybody in Spain, all my brothers and sisters, and everybody. It's great to see you. Thank you guys for putting this online. Thank you so much. And I am over here in Ray Bradbury Land in America. So, hello from America. Hi. Um, one of the things I was surprised, I was dying to participate in this um, club because I love the cross cultural perspectives. And I think that if we read them um, books and stuff from our own culture, we may be only viewing it from our own culture. So I thought it's so wonderful to get it from a point of view from someone else. So I thought I got to join this club and see what they're thinking. So then there was a story called the Foghorn, which I wasn't too familiar with, you know? So I thought, all right, I'll check this out. And then there was this creature. And I think I felt the same way as one of my colleagues. I was like, this isn't going to be like a Loch Ness thing, is it? You know? Did you guys uh, freeze on me? Okay. So I thought this isn't going to be some Loch Ness monster or something, a great creature of the deep or something. I was like, ah, well, it's pretty short, so I could read it. So I started reading it, and I thought there was a there's a, a beauty in this, you know, that I that just hit me, unexpectedness, and I just felt the yearning for the creature, you know, and it reminds me a lot of themes in um. Mary Shelley's novel in Frankenstein, the same kind of feelings that you feel for the creature kind of made me feel for this sea serpent or whatever, you know, the same kind of feelings. And I was just very, very intrigued by how Bradbury would um, use this creature as a metaphor, as a muse, as all these different things, you know, and it was very, very interesting to say is go beyond the surface, go beyond the exterior, go beyond the appearance and try to connect with the humanity of it. You know, try to connect with something. And I think that was a lot of the work of in Shelley's Frankenstein. And I think the same thing happens here. You know, so if you see something that may look different, whether it be even whether it's not even human or whatever, try to connect with something. Try to see if it can still feel, you know? And when I saw this creature come up and get to that, that um, the, um, the lighthouse, I was wondering, you know, is he trying to find a companion or is he just trying to get comfort from the sound of the foghorn? And I just kind of thought, you know, that's just so beautiful, though. You know, it's just so beautiful. And... When it ended, I just wanted to know, hey, are you going to be okay, creature? You going to be all right? And I was like, wait a minute. I, I was like, go back to my feeling in the beginning when I thought it was going to be some Loch Ness stuff. And now all of a sudden at the end, I had this empathy toward the creature. I was like, how did you do that, Ray Bradbury? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then I thought that's the reason why this guy is a master and this is why I'm not a writer. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was just really impressed by the fact that uh, a few words on the page could evoke this kind of feeling of empathy and compassion 
inner reader across his generations and everything, I was really amazed. And when I listened to some of my colleagues over there in Spain, I know it touched them too. And I just kind of thought that's the mark of the great of a great writer to do something like that. So I loved it for that reason because of what it brings out from me. All right, thank you. Uh, I really enjoyed the the story too. Um, for me, it, it's about uh, communication. How we need to communicate with others, to contact with others, and. Um, we know and we have experienced this in the past months that it is very difficult when we are in, in extended isolation because uh, we humans need to connect with other human beings. And through this uh, animal, this creature from the sea, we are reminded of the need to connect and be linked to other alive beings. Um, I like uh, Magdun and the narrator are also... Uh, they are also separated from the other parts of society. They stand on, on the border of, of sea and land, and they are also living on their own uh, world, uh, away from, from everything, isolated from both uh, worlds. Um, one of you mentioned about how Magdan, when he tells the story, he gives us his uh, well, understanding, his, his uh, own record of the story, letting us know what we should think and what is happening there. And But I like his his position. Like he's an isolated sea worker, and um, we know that he has a narrative bias when telling the story. I mean, he's reading to the monster actions because of his own loneliness, maybe. Like he's thinking that uh, maybe he's projecting his own emotions into the monster because he himself is, feels lonely and, and isolated. And uh, I think that's the beauty that reaches us. Like, melancholy can be very beautiful. Sadness can be beautiful. And I think this is what we are feeling in this story because this is what the narrator, Magdun, or, or the people that lives, the, the man that lives with uh, Magdun in the, in the lighthouse is telling us. So overall, a very good story that um, made us feel a, a lot of feelings for what I can see. So that's uh, really good. And now we can start with the more freely discussion about the story. If there's something else you want to, to add about it. Yeah, well, I just wanted to comment. There was um, a comment on on in i don't know uh, wikipedia <laughs> that said uh, this is this is not not the loch ness monster but is probably the origin of godzilla much to bradbury's um, despair or dismay or, or chagrin i think he says he, he wasn't pleased with that idea and he changed the title of the of the story to the foghorn when they used it in a film or something. So he, he wasn't pleased with the adaptations that people were were making of his of his story. Probably because they because they they put they precisely they forgot about this loneliness, this need to communicate, and just concentrated on the monster aspect of the. There is a movie of his short story. What? There are uh, there, there's, I mean, 2,000 leagues or fathoms or whatever under the sea, and not, not Jules Verne, but the, the, yeah, there's, there's sort of a film, but it's more like a horror film, as is Godzilla. But, the, but Godzilla existed before, no? 
No. No, I just read that the, um, Ray Bradbury was very, uh, in terms of, uh, as as one of his friends put it, very pissed off at the Japanese studios for <laughs> taking inspiration from oh. his story and in his words, ripping it off uh, to create Godzilla. So <laughs> really? he was definitely yeah. not a happy camper. <laughs> may, I inter sorry, may I interject? Yes, please. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. Um, this was a little bit before my time, I'm happy to say. <laughs> but um, back in the, in the 50s in America, I think one of the big things that this was actually appeared in a short story format in the magazine called the Saturday Evening Post. And it was right. serialized, like kind of a thing. And then um, they put it into a novel and um, they decided to make, Hollywood decided to make a movie of it. And then back in the 50s, this was credited as launching the whole creature feature movies, you know, the beast from the thousand fathoms. And then this creature thing came creature from the black lagoon and all this kind of creature things in the fifties, the blob and all that kind of stuff. So the thing about the Ray Bradbury was really upset because you stripped off the themes from the movie and just created a creature versus people. That's all it was. But if you read the story, as all you did, there are certain themes about humanity, about stuff in there that he didn't like because you're basically stripping his work and demeaning it into a just person versus monster, which the novel was never about. The story was never about. So it's a kind, that's what he was really upset about because you're stripping away the themes of it. So it's... You're, it's almost like you're mocking it, you know? So, but unfortunately, I think in the U.S., that led the whole creature thing, movies of the 50s and stuff. So, but that's, I think, what Bradbury was really upset because you can't make a movie of this book without dealing with the humanitarian themes of it. So, yeah, unfortunately, but, you know, that's Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Interesting that he... It was almost like he purposely made it so it was not at all about the monster attacking the humans. As a matter of fact, I don't think the monster even mm -hmm. knew they were there. He, the monster was upset at the, at the lighthouse. <laughs> That's why he attacked it. But yeah. Exactly. Was, yeah. I, I you know, the other... Uh, go ahead. Um, I think Hollywood kind of goes in waves. Back during the 50s, there was this big communist scare. There was the rise of McCarthyism and everything. So if you make a movie, it's very easy to make something black and white where the good guy is clearly this, the bad guy is clearly that, and it kind of fit into that frame. So, you know, I think at that point, they weren't making movies that had different kinds of levels of subtlety. You know, so I, I kind of think it fit the era of that time, you know. Um, but yeah, it's really, really horrible. But there's a saying over here in America that the book is always better than the movie. <laughs> so, but um, I agree with Miss Colleen and um, Mr. Eric had a lot of wonderful things to say. And so, you know, um, you guys, I'm learning from you guys. So, but it's, it's really nice, I think, um, uh, Mr. I don't know who did this, who recommended it, but Mr. Adrian or whoever recommended it, I want to thank you all for this gift because I'm surprisingly 51 
and I never heard this, and I'm living in America. So I wanted to say thank you guys for this gift, because this was wonderful for me. So thank you guys so much for doing that. Thank you for being here. Actually, we're kind of a science fiction, Bradbury specifically, fans. Somehow, no, 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 we're not. No, we're not. <laughs> 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 Jessica is not part of that club. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we have read some, some of Bradbury's stories in English and also in, in Spanish. The Spanish There's translations. There's a lot for... of them, like four of Bradbury alone, I think. <laughs> That's a whole lot, I think. Yeah. I would like to, I would like to just ask some, because, like, um, why does it seem like the great science fiction you know, you go in there and you think it's about a spaceship, about a creature, about a robot or something. But always the best science fiction lasts because it says something about us. You know, it says something about humanity. And I think that's the difference between a story and a classic story. Is that if a story could hold a mirror to society or to us, then it's memorable because it teaches us something. And it's ironic because we all go into science fiction just hearing a tall tale, looking for a, something of a robot or, or a creature or a spaceship or something. And then by the end of the time, when we close the book, we realize, no, it's really about ourselves. Yeah. One of the reasons that I like science fiction is because it allows us to see us from a different perspective. It just changes the, setting, the settings for, for human beings and how we interact, how our relationships happen, how we react and behave. Um, because we can say, yeah, we humans are like this, but what if the conditions were different? What if we were living in a different planet with a different uh, environment? What if we were locked inside a spaceship for years? What if we found an alien civilization that was very difficult very different to, to us. And with all these variables, we play with what we are, which is humans, but facing different situations. So allows us to, to wonder with what ifs, what ifs. And that's, that's really, really cool. Sorry, Eric, I think you were going to talk. Yeah, uh, you know, in, in my country, in Russia, <clears throat> science fiction is considered uh, sort of mainstream and uh, a little uh, like below the classics, you know, in a bad way. And uh, in our schools, uh, in Russian schools, uh, Ray Bradbury used to be a science fiction writer, but in recent years, uh, he is uh, taught to us like a classic great writer, not a science fiction writer. For some reason, science fiction in Russia is considered like mainstream in a bad way. And uh, when I was reading this story, I have, I think I have multiple times emphasized with the sea monster because I recognized myself uh, as a sea monster during certain stages of my life, uh, which was um, like very lonely, right? And uh, I used to read about the, the, this plague, the, the plague of loneliness and that uh, I, uh, when I was reading this book, uh, I tried to remember the way I felt uh, and the way I behaved. And I think that uh, during this um, during these uh, stages of my life, this uh, sense of loneliness often uh, led to a constant, like a habit of uh, constant fear and uh, like 
constant uh, uh, like constant uh, feeling of unseen dangers, uh, if if uh, if you know what I mean. And uh, I think it, it's it's quite uh, biological that when a person in this uh, type of grief, in this type of uh, loneliness, he um, tries to uh, release his pain by doing stupid, violent stuff. And uh, when I, I, I uh, read about the, the, the sea monster uh, uh, damaging the, 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 the lighthouse, I thought that, yes, this is what I used to do uh, when you, of course, not to, I, I, I didn't uh, uh, harm anyone physically, but uh, uh, metaphorically, I used to damage all kinds of lighthouses just to kill the source uh, of my pain. Of course, it was uh, always associated with, uh, with, uh, with uh, girls. So uh, I, I saw, I saw, uh, I recognized myself in this uh, sea monster. I'm done. Genius, man. That's just genius. I'm going to Russia. <laughs> Don't. Like, we're trying to get out of here. <laughs> oh, man. That was kind of a bad moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliantly perceptive, man. That is really amazing, you know? That is really amazing. You know, Mr. Eric, I got to tell you, it's, it's incredibly heroic to open yourself up that level when you're reading a text, you know? I mean, I take my hat off to you, but I didn't get a haircut because this quarantine. So otherwise, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's incredibly amazing that you can do that, you know? So I, I have utmost admiration and respect for you way out there in Russia. That's just a wonderful thing that you're doing. Thank you, thank you, sir. It's interesting, yeah, the idea of the destruction and destroying something that you want to love, you know, even, so he wanted so badly, I guess, for the lighthouse to be another one of him and when it stopped and he felt like it wasn't, it was almost like it destroyed it and then fell on it and <laughs> then went back into the sea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, oh, that, that, um, it's something also that applies not only to the things you've loved, but to the perfect ideal of something, like when you're translating relationships and people don't only just lash out at the imperfect versions of things they had or at ideas of things they had, but even just things that were never what they were supposed to be in a perfect world. No. So I don't know. Um, so for, as in for all, you know, the, the creature never had a mate, no, like, yeah, might have even had a had a mate, or and and how people do it with when they find that the things they have, um, because they are real, are not perfect. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I'm just running. No, I, I think you are <laughs> quite right. Like um, I think the the creature 
decide to destroy the, the tower, the raids or whatever fills him at that moment comes from disillusion for thinking that the tower was something that was not. And we can think about that as an ideal that we create in our heads and then reality shocks us when, when that doesn't happen, that's not true. Or just because the, the sound stops, what uh, the, the main characters in the story do is stop the sound and he had been traveling for a year just to reach that tower because of the sound. And then the, the calling from his, whatever, his, the, the, what he thinks that he's going to be a creature, another creature like him, is not there, it's not there anymore. So he, get, he gets enraged and wants to destroy the, the source of all this dissolution and, and the thing that is no more. Mm. I think that the fact that the monster destroyed the, the lighthouse is still related to, to loneliness because um, the lighthouse was uh, open or like built like only for five years, I think. So maybe the monster has like high hopes uh, for the lighthouse to be like a real creature. Um, it suddenly realized that it's not. So out of frustration, it decided to destroy it because it finally has the confirmation that he is like, it is alone in, in the world, right? I guess, I don't know, it's my interpretation. And also I want to mention that uh, the story also remind me, I think it's a real story. I'm not completely sure because I found out in in because of a song but i think there was like a real story about a whale uh that has a different pitch from all the other whales so no other way could like communicate with with it so it was like very very sad <laughs> as well poor yeah. whale yeah <laughs> <laughs> I've heard, I've heard about that whale as well. Yeah, it's real, right? Yeah, or there's birds that change their chirp, I think, because of the sound of stoplights that are nearby. So there's these birds now that are changing their song, and then they can't find <laughs> each other. Or we have a rooster nearby here, like in a ravine, and he just doesn't know when to sing, cause, because there's street lights. He doesn't know what time it is ever. So he's just going off at any random moment. <laughs> You're like, ah, oh, that rooster's drunk. Yeah. And it's like, no, the poor guy has like a street light and he's okay. <laughs> but yeah, I hadn't thought about like the eco aspect. Or maybe that's more in, in current sci-fi, no? That maybe this wasn't written um, with so much in mind talking about how how we're messing with the minds of um, ancient creatures, <laughs> but um, the, the description of of the of the well, not not exactly the journey, but the way it wakes up and it, you know he yeah, has to sort of let let's say stretch and you know wash its face, let's say metaphorically, yeah, and. We lost you there, <laughs> Jessica. You froze again. You're back now. If you want to repeat the last thing you said. 
Um, it, it, it just gives you this idea of all this energy, this this monster is putting into going and finding this, you know, this sound that's drawing him or her. And it just makes it all much sadder, which, I, which uh, comes to say, it's, it's a very good description is what I'm, I'm getting to at. Kind of like the theme of Destroyed Hope. Of what? Destroyed Hope. Oh. Like he has, you know, all this hope and then suddenly it's just destroyed. Okay. Which are all very human uh, feelings, yeah. thoughts, you know, I mean, uh, this, this monster is very, very personified as a humanized, I don't know how you say it. But of course, well, I mean, this is what we see by its own actions. It's not exactly as if we're told what the, what the monster is feeling. You know, by its actions, we can see. Yeah, but we are attributing a lot of feelings that are human, indeed. And the narrator leads us to believe that the mountain I was going to call him monster. It's not a monster, a creature. Uh, it, he or she is um, a living being, but we don't know what's inside its head. Like maybe he is just trying to mate somehow, and then it gets enraged when that doesn't happen. Or maybe it's actually happened, this desire for connecting with someone because he's been alone for a million years. But all this is just a theory that the narrator of the story is telling us. Like, he believes that this creature has been living in, in the bottom of the, of the sea, in the deeps, for millions of years, but we don't really know that. Like, it's probably, it's, it's like it's a, it's a good theory, and it brings the story to be something beautiful and melancholic, but maybe it's, there's something different inside the, the creature's head. Yes, sure. I'm sorry. I just finished uh, reading a book called Talking to Strangers, by Gadwell, Malcolm Gadwell, and he talks about how difficult it is for us humans to humans to accurately judge another person by different things like their outward behavior, uh, how they might, expressions, facial expressions. We've, we've attached like, you know, what, what a happy face is or a sad face or whatever, and how inaccurate we can be um, so often about what is the kind of the true nature or feeling of that person, which is kind of disturbing sometimes because we have to have clues on how to understand each other. But but yeah, you're right. We're we're projecting all of our our sensibilities and ways of looking at the world onto this creature, and and yeah, we can't really understand it. Uh, we're just understanding ourselves maybe a little bit better, not maybe understanding the creature really. Can maybe. I, um, sorry. Go ahead. go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, maybe for all we know, the creature thought the lighthouse was super annoying and would come up. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, Thank God it's knocked over. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I love the fact that, you know, as we're thinking more and more deep into it, there's Colleen over there who just smacks us on the head. It's like, no, it could be a little bit more simpler, dude. You know, <laughs> so, you know, thank you, Colleen, for injecting that sense of rationality into the whole point of view. But I want to touch back into what Mr. Uh, is it Diaz? 
Mr. Diaz was saying that, you know, when, we, when he was saying that it's a lot about communication. And one of the things I kind of thought is that this creature of the deep, I wasn't sure if he was destroying the lighthouse. Maybe he was just trying to communicate. You know, like if you're viewing species as different animals playing, how do you know if they were playing or are they fighting? I remember I watched a documentary on the great Jane Goodall and um, she was showing these monkeys and stuff. And like, I thought they were fighting. And this, no, that's how they play. That's how they play. So I was like, all right. So then if, as me, as an observer, I didn't know that. So like this creature, was this creature trying to destroy the um, lighthouse or was he trying to communicate? Was he trying to figure out, hey, if I do this, this creature, this lighthouse would respond in a certain way or something, and then invariably it's not a creature and the lighthouse got destroyed. So maybe, like what Mr. Diaz was saying, maybe the essence here is communication. And um, to going on with, with my, with my um, fellow colleague, Ms. Donahue, was saying that the difficulty in trying to see something and interpret something you know, that we always have. I think there is a little element in science fiction of anthropomorphizing it, where we try to attribute a human attribute to something that's not human. But the thing I think is, is genius about doing that is you recognize the possibility of compassion. The idea that we're enlightened beings and another creature can't have it is really the insult. You know, that's the real insult. So maybe there is a little anthropomorphizing the creature, as in, in all kinds of stuff. Maybe in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the creature is anthropomorphized, you know, and stuff. But the idea that because they look different and we can't attribute a human quality like compassion is a greater insult, you know? So just because this creature comes in the deep and lives there and comes every once, once a year or something, does it not feel, does it not try to want to desire to be with another person or another being of its kind, you know? And that element is really what's wonderful about science fiction, that it gets us out of our comfort zone. It gets us to look beyond the lens of prejudice and just see for what all of us living beings share, an empathy, a compassion, a feeling for someone, and I think the best way to do that is by creating a story in which the character is different from you. Yeah, and then when you have different characters that are very different between them, the communication becomes crucial. And uh, the more different the characters are, the more difficult the, connect the connection, the communication is. I'm thinking now on the movie The Arrival, which is based on a Ted Chiang story. Uh, I think the story is called The Story of Your Life because of what happens in the, in the short story. But uh, it's also about communicating with aliens that come to, to visit us. And the entire process of deciphering their language and how to... Um, get meaning across to different uh, species, which is uber complicated. And uh, to think that we can communicate with, uh, say, a creature from millions of years ago, and to think that we can understand what's, what it's trying to convey to us, what's the meaning behind its behavior, is to think that we are projecting a lot, because we can't really know.
Oh, that's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that got deep. But, but, but yeah, the, but, yeah. Hey, but if well, you, yeah, now I even feel worse. <laughs> no, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, it's not, it wasn't a critique against anything. I mean, it was picking back off of Miss um, Mary's comment. But the thing is that it wasn't a critique. It was just the fact that look at what such a, all these emotions and dissections that could come from such a short story. I would never be able to write anything that brilliant that can evoke this kind of discussion about humanity in, in like a small little novella. I could never do that. So I just think the mere fact that you could have all these kind of discussions that are either, you know, deep or esoteric or complicated or whatever is a tribute to that author. Because at the end of the discussion, when we leave, when we turn the camera off, I guarantee you we're going to look at our neighbor differently. And that's the value of the story. Yeah. And, you know, I also, by the end of the story, I felt uh, even more depressed uh, than I was <laughs> when I started. But then I, I said, um, well, wait a minute, uh, this Magdan uh, character, right? Uh, like all the time I was reading this short story uh, in my head, uh, there was a soundtrack of like Joker type uh, soundtrack, very eerie, uh, melancholic, you know, depressed type of music. But then I thought about Mag Magdan and uh, for some reason, for some reason, uh, there was a song in my head uh, uh, by Sebastian the Crab from The Little Mermaid, like <laughs> Under the Sea, etc. So, because I thought that, like, wait a minute, this, this Magdan, uh, he is in physical isolation. Uh, he, has, he had been in physical isolation uh, almost his entire life. I might be mistaken, but that's how I remember it. And physical isolation and loneliness are closely tied. And I thought that, uh, look at Magdan, right? I mean, you can, the, the story of Magdan for me is that you can live alone without being lonely. So that, that's, the, that's, the, uh, the, that's the Magdan's story for me. So that, that's a, a little glimpse of hope from this short melancholic story. Man, I gotta go to Russia. <laughs> You know, I, go, I, 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 I it, it's not my ideas. I, 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 I steal them from Netflix, you know, so. I, I'm like, I don't know, because I'm like, I'm, I think I'm older than Mr. Eric. I'm sitting behind a background with all these books, and I'm clearly the dumbest of the group. <laughs> oh, come on. It, but it induces it, it a sense of humbleness in me, though. So. <laughs> Next time I come to this club, I'm going to hear it with a notepad and pencil. <laughs> oh, come on. It's just uh, this, this lonely, <laughs> the lonely sea monster uh, is just the story of my life. So, you know. <laughs> I think we should all meet in Madrid and discuss this over, over a few beers. Uh, <laughs> but I also... I think, the, I think the virus is affecting us all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's thanks to it that we're all our own little monsters trying to find somebody at some lighthouse to to just go to. I'm Everyone can hang up and go. <laughs> what was that? <laughs>
kind of makes me, kind of makes me wonder, you know. Hey, uh, yo, Mr. Uh, Mr. Eric, is there any is there any lighthouses in Russia? No, 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 no. And and that's an and that, and that's another uh, depressing uh, idea to contemplate on because the lighthouses are so romantic, so poetic, and uh, they are useless now because uh, they they have been replaced by all these navigational devices and uh, you know i thought that uh, oh my god i mean like uh, in in a couple of years a lot of people will switch to the useless class just like lighthouses were and i felt so depressing again <laughs> i i need that song by sebastian from the little mermaid because i think i'm a major downer here and i'm bringing everyone no. down with me no. so, <laughs> so here here's something that so simon sir bit. has brought us to sebastian from the little mermaid i love <laughs> i love this this discussions just for this moment yeah one thing that might make you cheer up too for where i am I'm in Denver, Colorado, and every night at eight o'clock, anyone who wants to, we go out of our house and we howl like a wolf. <laughs> yes. I need do. some context. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, no. it, it's, it's one, well, it's one to recognize all of the people who are uh, working so hard for us now, you know, the, the people in the hospitals and and the people who need to, uh, the, the fire people, the, the people who need to be in stores that might not be as protected as they should be. Any of the, the people who pick up our garbage, you know, and, and, and you go out and you recognize those people who are helping in your community while you're, you're um, isolated. So um, some people hit pans, which I think are is more of a European thing, uh, hitting the pots. That's very Spanish, isn't it? Hitting the, the brothers, pots. Uh, no, but, I, actually, in, in Spain, we clapped, you know, normal yeah. reaction yeah, to say thank you. <laughs> Howling is a bit strange. We clapped for, <laughs> and, and for say thank you, and we hit I, the pants <laughs> for protesting. <laughs> yeah. Thank you in the pants for protesting. Yeah. Yeah. When I lived near the Retiro, I could see from my apartment pro, uh, protests the various sorts pretty much every day going through Madrid. Yeah. Was, mm. But anyway, <laughs> we, we howl so, uh, at 8 o'clock if, if you want to. And I often do. And it's a wonderful outlet. It kind of connects you to other people but in your neighborhood without seeing them necessarily. And also it you know, connects you to nature. So that's what we do. We howl. Yeah, that's very that's very cool, actually. Like, just let out everything that you have inside by howling, all the confinement and all the stress because of the of the situation. We did the the clapping in the the applauding to to the people helping us, like the the nurses and doctors, but also all the essential workers, whatever that means, doing all the job for us. We did it in a very organized way, like. Every day at eight o'clock, people go to the windows, to the balconies, to the terraces and started uh, clapping. Like, for example, in Italy, that they were confined for a long time, too. They didn't do it 
on, on an organized way every day at the same time. They just went out to to say and, and shout wherever they wanted, whenever they feel like like doing that. Okay. But every day a date we did it. That's, and that you know, I think that that's cross cultural. You know, and if you can relate that even to the story, it's just the fact that no matter what hits you, you know, there's nothing that could defeat the human spirit and our ability to recognize someone else who's protecting us, you know? If it, no matter where you are in the world, I mean, when I saw a video in the news about Italians standing out in their balcony, in their patio and cheering everybody, I felt that here in America, I felt that. And when I hear people in Spain, you know, hitting with their pots and pans, you know, it's the same love that the Italians have, it's the same love that we have, you know? And there's something beautiful about the spirit of humanity that it can't defeat us, whether it be a virus or an unseen enemy or whatever, that we are all linked around the world with our ability to care for a brother or a sister. And there's something beautiful in that. I hope you guys are all safe and everything, by the way. No, just on, on another positive note, think, thinking a bit about how everyone's been feeling about the story and thinking about what Adrian was saying about how it's a common theme in sci-fi, this thing to communicate, no? But the deep down you can't communicate and you end up subscribing things. And um, and yeah, that and you see that through sci-fi going back many, many decades. But I think sci-fi plays a lot with how you approach that lack of communication so is your reaction to the lack of communication fear or empathy, no? And traditionally, I think it's been fear. Or when, when you were talking, Jake, before about like how uh, Bradbury was unhappy about the perversion of his themes, kind of. And, and if you think about it, like all the monster movies, it's all about reacting with fear. And then sometimes it turns out the monster's not that bad. Um, and it and it plays also with you know the the nuclear warfare fear all the fear mongering and we've kind of been leading up to this hysteria point of of fear in society all, all the time through the decades and and it's just been recent years where it seems there's more like these eco sci-fis things like that where there is a need to communicate with something that can't be pushed aside and i don't know and just everyone's reaction to this where i feel like now people, maybe it only, it won't last that long, but everyone's feeling really strongly for the sea monster. <laughs> and hopefully that leads to something moving forward and to a new, maybe even a new trend in literature. And um, yeah, I don't know. It would be interesting to see where, where that takes. Like for, and, and I feel like it almost happened for a bit in the 70s, no? With like early Star Trek that was a little more humanistic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the last 10, 15 years, it's like just bazooka everything because it's coming to kill you, you know? Um, there was a, there was a, an interesting science fiction movie that kind of changed a little bit, I think in the 50s. And missed all these monster movies, there was a movie called uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and it's a yeah. classic in the science right. fiction yeah. genre. This alien spaceship comes over to Earth. And I hate to spoil it, but it's kind of crucial. And they're all like, there's fear. They're going to destroy us. Oh, my gosh, what are they going to do? And what do they want? And suddenly the spaceship lands and this door opens up and there's some alien spaceman, you know, and this typical 50s there's a guy in the suit, right? But the special effects are so bad. But anyway, this alien being comes out 
And it turns out it's just a warning that you guys are going to be killing your own planet. I came from another galaxy and everything to help you guys out, dude. You know, don't fear the messenger. You know what I mean? So all of a sudden, you know, science fiction changed. You know, it's not maybe we shouldn't be fear. Maybe we should actually listen a little bit, you know. And I think that's one of the things going back to what Mr. Diaz says. The hallmark of all of this is communication, because if you can't communicate, you can't feel, you can't empathize. If you close the door, then you don't know what you're going to get to learn. You can't close the door on someone. You know, you don't know what you're going to, you might not learn from. And I think, you know, if I had a choice right now to study the foghorn with some group in America or with your group, I pick your group because of the fact that you guys could bring different perspectives to it. You know, so... That's why I kind of chose your group, but I didn't know you guys were all smart. I might have to read some of this stuff. <laughs> so the next time I come here, I'm going to be here with a notepad and pencil and everything. So I didn't know that. I figured I could just read like the cliff notes or some summary or something and that'd be enough. <laughs> you know, but I'm grateful for the opportunity. And I want to say just... You know, um, I wanted to say thank you guys from the bottom of my heart uh, to say to put this online because it'd be virtually impossible for me to get a plane ticket and go there to be with all of you. I hope someday that happens. But I want to also just say the fact that you could put this online brings all of my brothers and sisters together. And I got this wonderful opportunity to meet everyone and more importantly, to learn from them. So... To me, uh, thank you for that wonderful gift. I want to make sure I sneak this in. So I just want to say thanks a lot for this wonderful gift that you guys are teaching me. So thanks a lot, you guys. And please help save America. Please. <laughs> <laughs> help. <laughs> help. Thank you, Dick, for, <laughs> for, being, for being here. And that, that it's, it's awesome what technology can, can do. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking now that the world talking about, uh, about this and doing the, the online discussions on what technology can provide for humans. I was thinking on Contact, the novel by Carl Sagan that later was made a, a movie with Jodie Foster, I think, and uh, how the entire movie is about contacting uh, another civilization and how they build a machine. Like, I, I think this other civilization, which is more advanced than us, send us like the blueprint for a machine that will bring the hum humans to, to, this, to the planet where they live or, or something like that. And uh, our best technicians, engineers, thinkers, mathematicians start working on the, on the spaces and until we get it done and we get to contact the, the aliens or whatever they are, which in the novel is a very secular ending, but for some reason in the Hollywood movie, they, it's, it's like a very religious ending. But in any way, what we do is finding something that is not our world, that is not uh, humans as, as we know them. And all that is achieved through technology and human intelligence. And I guess that human desire and need to connect to other human beings. But the thing about like uh, science fiction and the thing where um, you mentioned before, um, for me it's like very annoying when you are reading like a science fiction story about the aliens and the aliens are like so similar to human beings. Like for me, it's really uh, far-fetched the idea that an alien civilization is gonna be 
so similar to 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 us even in in the in the in the body and you know like but in this story actually when i was reading about the the animation is 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 a kind of dinosaur so for me in this point was like oh it's a bit more realistic i know say it's a realistic story but it was more realistic than i was expecting it because it it could be possible that there's still like some kind of prehistoric uh creatures very deep in the in the ocean i think and it's not perfect to think that this kind of creature are, are social animals as well as a lot of creatures in our world. So for me, I didn't read this story like it was like very crazy idea about other worlds and aliens and, and everything. Yeah, I think that we try to make aliens like ourselves shows a lack of creativity on our part. That we can't think outside <laughs> of what a human would be and yeah yeah i remember um we we always bring this one up but i think in in this context it it makes sense the three-body problem <laughs> in which the, communication, the, the novel the three-body problem hmm. by um chinese author whose name is very difficult to pronounce but i think i'm going to get it right <laughs> and we we had a very interesting discussion with the club and a very big part of the, the novel that makes a lot of sense was the attempts to communicate with the aliens with the trisolarians I believe they were called um, and, and and it really reminds me of of how how science fiction has evolved to to not only limit itself to aliens and and magic guns and <laughs> and i don't know the typical space opera that i i i'm really fond of i'm i'm a fan of star wars <laughs> so i really liked it but it's cool to see that we're evolving with them the genre is evolving with us and our technological advances so we're kind of um exploring new horizons and and this theme of communication i think we 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 in the future are going to do great things with it <laughs> in the science fiction fiction genre. I hope so, at least. And I, it's also like so exciting to think about because it, it, it kind of boils down to how conscience can express itself. Like where can it exist and how can it be contained? Because they even find it's an issue when, when, they're, when you're portraying artificial intelligence because we're conceiving it the whole time as they would be able to have a normal conversation, but it's like, you know, you're talking about a thing that doesn't even have a body that's completely decentralized, can exist in anything and has no concept of what it is to have a body and, and pain. Like the level of abstraction of that consciousness is, and, and, and that could be the case with, with, um, the case with an alien no like it, it might not be how we feel if you think about like we tend to think our our personalities in this space no because <laughs> that's where our eyes are and that's where our processing is but it it could thing i don't know yeah this idea of how where consciousness can reside gives for internet like infinite options yeah there's a story by Isaac Asimov called The Last Question, 
where they create an artificial intelligence. And uh, the beginning, the artificial intelligence, because the story was right in Britain in the 50s, of course, was occupied like an entire room full of, of um, big machines with tapes that process the, the zeros and ones. But then the story evolves in time and then the big machine becomes a smaller machine, the micro thing that the, every human can have. And then the, this artificial intelligence stays in the space, in a special station, and then it becomes something else. It transcends the physical nature of the space and starts living or residing or existing as a conscious in the cyberspace. Until at some point, the universe itself is destroyed, but the consciousness, that, that, is, that living intelligent, artificial intelligence survives and actually creates a new, a new universe on, on its own. And the idea that the um, artificial intelligence not only can exist without uh, matter, but in our world, in our present days, that we are starting to be able to create artificial intelligence out of matter out of something physical is mind-blowing like we as human uh, humans assume that we can think that we have a consciousness and that that happens i don't know because of a soul or whatever but actually what we are doing is making a physical device that can have consciousness and when that happens we will be creating a um, mind a brains out of nowhere just with physical cables and, and metal which is quite interesting yeah, but for me it sounds quite <clears throat> impossible because from the from the from one of the books which you have discussed uh, in this book club by uh, Yuval Harari, uh, he discusses that uh, the artificial intelligence technologies uh, have been uh, like developed for a very long time, and we are quite uh, developed in this matter because artificial intelligence is uh, mathematic, algorithmic. It's uh, solving problems like A plus B equals C. But uh, we are on a zero level in terms of artificial consciousness because, uh, well, because we are so, so far away from, uh, from uh, developing uh, some sort of computer brain. But we are very far with artificial intelligence. And on the subject uh, matter of uh, the alien, I think, uh, like for example, I work in a very small company, uh, independent uh, company, a local in Russia, and 30% uh, of our employees are gay, uh, either homo, uh, either uh, yeah, gay or lesbian. And uh, I think uh, in our company, we've managed to create a quite friendly atmosphere to all uh, minorities, sexual or national minorities. And uh, another uh, way to look at the sea monster, I think, is uh, the sea monster is pretty much any type of minority uh, in, um, in difficult societies to live like Russia, for example, uh, because the sea monster, and I think it's mentioned somewhere in the middle of this short story, is that uh, Magdan talks about the sea monster and he says that the sea monster is someone who has to hide uh, all the time because he or she lives in a world which was not created for her or him. And so uh, when I look at Russia today and we are so, so like 
uh, we are so intolerant towards uh, gay, uh, any type of sexual minority, and uh, uh, they have to hide. And uh, a lot of them who are not able to find uh, an understanding society, they live in terrible uh, conditions under constant uh, physical threat from any, I mean, not only uh, um, aggressive uh, citizens, but uh, I, I would say 80% of the Russian population consider uh, homosexuality as a disease. Uh, so that's that's so that's so weird and so so sad, you know. You know, at this point, if anyone has any doubt or any wasn't too sure, the golden rule is just agree with Eric. <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> I, I I think I think he brings a lot of interesting points, and if I could dab into a little bit about artificial intelligence and stuff, I don't think there's really anything to worry about. I think humans will always be the creator will always be smarter than the creation, and the thing is is like to tip off a little bit of what Eric was saying. You know, they think in algorithms. You know, they think in terms of a plus will b plus c equals c like that, like what Eric was saying. But there is a thing called the um our, the artificial intelligence paradox. And the problem is, is that what we humans think that this is the greatest thing that we could possibly do is get higher intellect is the easiest thing for robots and um, artificial intelligence because you can easily program a, chess, a computer chess game to be smarter than a human. That's easy. But what we find that's amazingly simple to take steps to run or whatever, a robot finds it incredibly difficult. It's like volumes of mathematics just to get a robot to avoid a certain pillar or a certain thing or something like that, to get it to run and to self-balance mm -hmm. and everything is incredible. So what we find is easy, robots find hard. What robots find easy to program intelligence, we find difficult. That's the AI paradox. But one of the things I think that we should kind of be a little bit more aware of in science fiction and the literature because we came a long way since the 50s, we know a little bit more, is the idea is that can you have intelligence without empathy? That's the hallmark right there. That's the danger, whether it be an alien or whether it be a robot or whatever. If you could have in just pure intelligence without empathy, then that's a danger for all of us. Whether it be an alien or whether somebody created something in their lab at a university or something, if you can't feel, then we're all doomed. So that's the problem. Can you have intelligence without empathy? And we've seen that throughout history. We've seen a lot of people rise up and go to the political spheres and they became dictators and stuff. And obviously there's a bizarre level of intellect there to manipulate the Politburo or the parliament or the Congress. I'm not saying anything there, hello. But, you know... <laughs> You know, there's some way of getting up that requires a little bit of intelligence and manipulation to get up to that point. But if you have empathy, there is hope. The danger is, is that that intelligence could lead to this egotistical, narcissistic type of behavior. Not saying anything about the current climate, but you could figure it out. You know? So if you could have intelligence without empathy, then there's a real danger. 
as long as empathy is there, then we have the hope, whether it be an alien being or a robot or whatever, if they can feel for us, then we're safe. We've got nothing to worry about. But if you could have a t- intelligence without the empathy, then you got a creature that could run amok. Well, you, you have intelligence without uh, empathy. You have a sociopath, basically. And if you have a yeah. sociopath who is governing anything, even if it's just a company, it's a great danger. It, or, never, mind, or, it never mind a country or a race or whatever. Right. Yeah, you know, because, you know, like I got, where is it? This whole thing here. Say the synopsis of psychiatry. Yeah, so like I'm saying, you know, whether it be some lonely little dude or the president, you know, I'm just saying. No one's exhausted. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying. Yeah. The dude told us to drink disinfectant. <laughs> <laughs> he said, put disinfectant in there. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> what? You went on live TV and told people that? <laughs> that you were coming to Spain uh, in September. I don't know if that's happening or, or not. Yeah, but I, I think your book club for September, uh, one of my favorite books had been canceled. So it was, which one was it? Persepolis. Uh, yeah, 
for several weeks. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. but I, I plan. I plan to. I, I plan, and that depends on La Liga schedule for the next year. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm Atletico Madrid fan. So, I I, I will be. Uh, I will be in Madrid often. So okay, we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Mr. Yeah. Eric. Okay. Mr. Eric, can I mention that there is a movie called Solaris, which was done by a great Russian director, and it, oh, yeah. it, it yeah. deals with your themes of loneliness. And I think you will really enjoy it. I think you'll really enjoy uh, it. One of my favorite movies by Tarkovsky, of course. Yeah. Okay, yeah. thank you, guys. Bye. 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 Bye, Eric. Bye. Bye, Stanislav Lem. Very, very good. I have um, to leave, too. So see you next discussion. Bye. 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 See you. Yeah. So, yeah. Jessica. I have to go as well. It's been really interesting. Um, I hope to see you all soon. Will do. Yeah, yeah. see so, you next one. Okay. So, Adrian, are you are you now going to uh, real meetings, or are you going? Are there going to continue to be some virtual? Both. We our plan is to. I noticed yeah. in uh, some of the meetups in uh, you know that I've been connected with in the past, in in some of the cities. They're now, I should have gotten on the virtuals earlier and I didn't. And now I see a lot of them are uh, going to be meeting in person. So I'll, I'll miss out then. Okay, well, I'll, I'll watch for some other virtuals. I'd yeah. love to join up again. We'll keep doing them. We'll do, do short stories during the weekdays, like today. And on the weekends, we'll do long works. Novels, you like know, every day, every day is the same. Every day's a good day. <laughs> What's a weekend? What's a, I don't know. It's all this. But great, great to see everyone. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Bye. But so, uh, the one this weekend is virtual, no? The... Yes, for now we are doing all, all of them virtual until yeah. September. In September, we'll start thinking about going back to. It depends on the situation in Spain because yeah. it is very unknown right now <laughs> and and how was the sapiens meetup it was quite good the the sapiens that we did online yeah it was good sapiens <laughs> 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 yeah <laughs> if you hit it without context <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it, it went nice. I, I was going to add following, because uh, we, we got uh, distracted, but following Jake's uh, intervention about, um, well, psychopaths getting into, into power, that I think that sadly, unfortunately, that's something that happens a lot. Like, the more sociopath you are, the less you care about the people around you, mm -hmm. the more you are focused on your goals without caring about anyone else, and if you don't mind hurting other people, then... The more chances you have of rising into power inside a company or in politics or or everywhere everywhere else because if you actually care you are going to look for others and you're not going to be so selfish and so self-centered so of course you are not going to be so able to rise so so fast so sadly sociopaths getting into power seems to be something that history repeats and that we see now nowadays every day in corporate land mm. 
I remember I, I studied law, but so this was a long time ago, but I remember in our criminology, we, we talked about psychopaths um, and this criminologist was saying, well, you know, the general population, 1% is a psychopath, more or less, um, but not, not all of them are, you know, it's just psychopathic behavior, not all murderers. But, and there was a chart that showed the, the, how many psychopaths there were per profession. <laughs> and the very top was at 3% psychopaths was politician and business. Wow. Yeah, and makes sense. This, this was like 15 years ago, which I think because of how the world is going and the overdrive, I, I'm sure this is way higher now in the general population because psychopathic behavior is rewarded and, and the, and 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 yeah, I'm. I wouldn't be surprised if it's like ten percent <laughs> politics. Yeah. Or in dating, or something. Yeah. Well, who are not sociopaths are Martun. It's his name. The the one of the characters in the story. Yeah, Martun and his co-worker because actually I like the relationship they have in the story it's mentioned at the beginning something like it's a lonely life but um, I'm glad that you were here you're a good talker thank the lord mm -hmm. like they they like each other they like to, to talk and they make company to each other and this is at the very beginning of the story and I think it's a foreshadowing of the rest of the story about communication and connecting with other and loneliness and how just if you want, can communicate with someone else, then that loneliness is not so so bad, which is what mm -hmm. the relationship that these two characters have between them. Yeah, right. Hmm. Um, yeah, can I, it's, oh, sorry. No, I was just saying it's a it's a nice connection. I hadn't I hadn't noticed it. That's cool. And then go ahead. Yes. <laughs> Can I ask a little side question? I was just curious because some of the, our conversation went from other books, other authors, and even adaptations of this book into a movie. So I was kind of curious, do we ever have um, a discussion about a movies? Because it would be interesting to see like if uh, a book that you reviewed was adapted into a movie and how much the movie is different from the book or if the movie added anything or if the movie dealt with the same themes of the book. So I was just kind of curious if you ever reviewed any or talked about movies as well that may be book related. Yeah, we, we have done it in, in the past. Something we did a double discussion, like uh, we read the, the book and then we watch the movie and we talk uh, about them and the, and the comparison. Actually, it's a, it's a good idea. We could do that online again someday talk about the movie and the and the book yeah it's, uh, it's it's always interesting to compare the different works because different media can focus on different aspects of the same of the same work i was um listening to the i was reading the foghorn and then i found out that somebody did like a radio drama of it and they put it on youtube so it became like an audio book. And as I was listening, you could hear like the wind howling in the background. And all of a sudden, the idea of the lighthouse being on this distant shore 
came alive, you know, because you could hear that, you could picture it clearly in your head. So in some ways it could kind of highlight the themes of the book, you know, so in some, you know, it kind of helped me to get into that picture. So it, it kind of helped out. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, sometimes different formats for, for art add something to the to the final picture. Like uh, if, you, if you transfer some piece of art to something else, it can conserve some of its original qualities, but with added uh, value. And that's, uh, that's really cool. Hmm. It will do something like that. Anyways, we've been talking about the short story for more than one hour and a half, almost uh, two hours. Uh, do you want to add something else about it? Something that we are missing or forgetting? I just, why do you think he waited to attack? Other than that, part right of the bike. Yeah, but did he attack the first time? Hmm. But, 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 and then he thinks it's going to lighthouse. Um, and it does. So I was kind of thinking, why was he at the very top? And I don't know. For, for me, that was something that um, was a weaker part in the story. But like I said, I read it maybe a little quickly. So maybe I, I missed something. Sorry, I'm not sure if, if I understood the, the question. Like, why does the creature wait to attack so long no, for five minutes? It seems that McDonn is predicting that he's going to destroy the lighthouse. I don't know about that. It, where he says, um, he's saying someone, they're at the very top looking at the creature and the and the creature's, you know, already at its full height looking at them. And McDonough is saying, well, that's life for you. Someone always waiting for someone who never comes home, always loving something more than the thing that loves them. And after a while, you want to destroy whatever that thing is. So it can't hurt you no more. So he kind of knows it's going to destroy the the lighthouse and he's been thinking about it for a year like yeah that's I don't know. yeah because it struck me too that he didn't he didn't do anything the first time but then i guess yeah this said maybe that's an explanation for why he the first time he saw the lighthouse he didn't destroy it but then the second time he then decided okay enough like hmm. came here again and who knows yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I, I thought the guy just like assumed he was the monster was gonna return but didn't know that he was gonna attack but in a way like for me the characters actually the human character are not that important mm -hmm. because the guy actually acts in a very passive way like he knows there is this creature and he didn't tell anybody Mm. Yeah. I thought, I don't know, maybe I read it wrong, but I thought they were just, you know, like it was a hypothesis, like he was just wondering, trying to figure out what the motive was. Like, so he, you know, how people just mm -hmm. toss stuff out in the wind and just say, maybe it's this or maybe it's that. And I thought he was just trying to toss out one of his hypotheses. Mm -hmm. yeah. It could be because on, on that paragraph, he seems to be talking more about love 
and being hurt by love than, than the actual creature. It's like he's projecting whatever his views are on, on the topic because, yeah, the thing about always someone loving something more than that thing loves them and after a while you want to destroy whatever that thing is so it can hurt you no more. It like it could be the lyrics to a love song of someone that's <laughs> heartbroken because their boyfriend or girlfriend left them, right? So yeah, yeah, maybe it's like there you go, uh, Mister. There you go, Mister Diaz. You got inspiration yeah. right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the thing is that we are all through the story. What uh, I think that we are looking at is at uh, this character's brain and Magdun's brain and their ideas, their hypotheses, the theories they have that may be wrong or not, but that they throw in a specific light um, to, the, to the story. Maybe, can I build off that? Maybe that is the point. The point is that if you bring, bring up your own view or whatever, that could be the prejudice, you know? Mm-hmm. That if you just, you're not, you're projecting onto that creature what you think your view is when it's a wholly entirely different being. Yeah. Yeah, right. that is so so in a sense, you're already prejudging what it is. You're already making a decision whether you like him or her or it when you didn't really hear that person. You didn't really hear that creature. So you're already assuming something. So maybe that's the point. That would make explain why that dialogue between the two is necessary. You know, so maybe there is a little thing about prejudice and trying to misjudge the intent of someone without hearing that person. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he definitely is definitely a projection of of his thoughts throughout the story, and that both of the two men, we don't, yeah, we don't actually know the creature. We don't actually know what he was feeling, or or why he came, or yeah, or anything. It's, um, I guess maybe McDonald's own loneliness and his own feelings about love and being left. So. I'm sitting there thinking Mr. Diaz is inspired and I think one of these days when you guys log on to the next book club he's going to say and here's a little song I wrote (laughs) (laughs) I wish I wish I could compose some some lyrics and some good song based on the stories we I was thinking following on on the the thoughts that we were talking about on what uh, Eric said before he left about the minorities the homosexual community and that the creature has to to hide and um, the um, I lost I lost my track of thought of what I was going to say with the with the, the minorities It's an an interesting thought because, I mean, on the surface, it it doesn't even, you know, like you might not even think about it, but it is, I mean, it's it's quite there, you know, because he is a minority. He's the only one Mm -hmm. and he has to hide because if he, if he were to show himself to anyone more than McDonough, he'd probably be killed. I mean, they would, (laughs) they would immediately assume that he was something horrible and terrible and, you know, they would kill him. So, Yeah. Oh yeah, I was thinking about that, about the dangers and the and the perils of being a, a minority with a sociopath in in power. Like uh, if um, someone contends an artificial, <laughs> right, an artificial <laughs> intelligence, for example, from killing someone else or or to genocide an entire civilization. Bye, Margot. See you next time. <laughs> 
uh, it's uh, empathy, the ability to see other human beings as human be be beings and not as, I don't know, if you are Hitler and you see the Jews as uh, subhuman, then you feel that you can kill them and there's no empathy there. And with yeah. minorities, something like this uh, happens, like you fail to empathize with, uh, with, with the people that is a minority in any given moment, which changes through history. And what in, uh, in some geographical location at some moment in time, it's a minority or at least a vulnerable um, part of the society, suddenly in another geographical moment in another society, they are empowered and have a lot of, of, of meaning for that society. And the, the only difference between harming the minorities of the vulnerable or the vulnerable people is empathizing and realizing yeah. that we are all humans, which some people have trouble to, to understand or to achieve. Yeah. Well, maybe you know, that would be utter genius if in that short story, he's proposing a solution to prejudice, and that would be the empathy you know that the views of McDonn and the other character are all judgments on that creature. And that's the prejudice. But if you look at it from the creature's point of view, you would have saw the feelings of him. So the idea that empathy could be the solution to prejudice would be quite profound if that's what the author was saying. In a short story, that would be the masterpiece. Right. No, it's interesting, his choice, his choice of how to, because he could have explored the theme of uh, loneliness and, and rejected love and everything in a very different way. And he chose to show it through, uh, through a creature. So yeah, it's quite that we can never really know what the creature's feelings, uh, feelings are. And it's not even like it's another human where you might be able to maybe guess, but we don't even know if the mm -hmm. creature had has the same concept of feelings as we do, or if it's something very different. So yeah, it's interesting, his choice of how he chose to, to, to talk about it. Then that, just to build off what you're saying, then that would make all the more point that the creature would have to be a creature. Yeah. You know, because if it was another <laughs> human of a foreign country, you would say, why are you judging? That doesn't make any sense. But if it's a creature, somehow we kind of assume that those two come, the conversation between the two are rational. Yeah. But if, you, but if they were talking to about another foreigner, you would say that's clearly prejudicial behavior, that's clearly uncalled for. And yet somehow when the reader says, you know, there's this big monster or creature lurking in the deep, you know, and they never say that the creature is evil. No, he's not evil. I mean, no. yeah, there was nothing in the story to, to, to make you conclude that, that he was, evil or he meant any you know harm to them i mean as a matter of fact he didn't seem to even know they were there he was more concerned yeah. about the tower but yeah it's almost like because he was so other we assume that we know how he feels but actually we don't know but it's that automatic assumption well of course we know because he's a creature so we know better than we can just like we sometimes assume we know what dogs feel or cats feel or whatever and we don't have any idea <laughs> I remember, yeah. um, I remember Jane Goodall once said back when she was studying these monkeys and everything, there was a prevailing belief that humans were the smartest people on this planet because they were the only one who's capable of making a tool, of altering their environment and making a tool. 
And she's sitting there in the jungle with a little notepad and found out these monkeys, you know, or these chimpanzees, basically broke a branch and stuck it into this um, little, you know, mound and got some ants and ate it. But that modification of the environment made the tool. And it was so simple. But yet academia was like, no, that, that, that can't be possible because us humans are the only one. And it was just amazing to believe that all of a sudden the, the scientific community would reject that idea because we have to be so superior that yeah. we can't believe that another creature could have the same ability. And in a way that is an academic prejudice. So it's kind of interesting to think that in this short, short little novel, maybe the same lesson applies. Just because this creature is so big and so humongous and everything and swims around in the deep, the idea that we're so hard, so, so much superior that we could attribute its motivation without knowing that much. I mean, it clearly says it only comes like once a year, and yet somehow we're the expert. Yeah. So there is a little like a little kind of intellectual arrogance in a way. Mm. You know, so human, human arrogance. Yes. Human arrogance, exactly. Thank you. So maybe, you know, the the novel is also showing a little mirror to us. Yeah. You know, look at what we could be empathetic, we could be horrible, we could maybe cast misjudgments and on people without even us knowing about it, without even being aware. You know, and nobody ever thought of the pain of that creature going around a whole year looking around for something, some comfort, another being like him or a sound or a voice or something. Nobody ever looked at it from that point of view. So there may be something about this arrogance that we have as a human beings that we got to keep in check. And maybe that empathy is that solution. I think... We do that constantly with our pets, for mm -hmm. example. We attribute them anthropomorphic, as you said before, qualities to them that they may not have. And cats, we were talking about cats before the discussion started, and we were talking about why and how they behave, and we, we don't really know. We are just assuming yeah. similar to, <laughs> They think when they see us. <laughs> yeah, to, to humans. And I think the same thing happens with the, with the creature in, in the story, because if we stripped the story from McDoon and his co-worker point of view and information that is only their insights, their, their theories of what is happening with the creature. What we have is Godzilla. It's a monster that comes from the sea and destroys the sea light. And that's all the factual, real information that we have. It's a creature that appears and starts destroying stuff. Now, we, after reading the short story, we feel some empathy for the creature and we tend to think, yeah, like sadness and melancholy and loneliness when we think about the, the creature. But that's just only in our, in our head, which makes me think that our brains are capable of the best and of the worst. And we can yeah. think awesome feelings towards other living creatures, or we can be the most horrible person, people. We've right? shown so, it others. repeatedly in history, no? Yeah. <laughs> can I... Yeah. Uh, I'm only going to tell you guys because there is such a small group, but I hope to, I hope to, um, I hope to God someday I get the fortune and the blessing to see you guys in person. But I will tell you this. Um, I had everybody, you know, whenever you meet someone that you care about and you think this is the one, this is the one, right? You got a little like pseudo test 
to erase your doubt, right? So here was my little test. You know, I'm a clinical psychologist guy. So <laughs> I deal with uh, doing therapy for women and children who have been abused in human traffic. So I do the therapy for them. And so I am, it's not the exterior, it's the interior. I need to know this because I know 30 years from now, you're going to get the wrinkles and I, I don't really care. But if you got the heart, that's it. So I have this little test. Once I find that, you know, she's cool and everything and I'm happy with her, I take her to the museum. But before I go into the, before I take her there, I go look for an exhibit that's ugly or distorted or something, you know? And I know whoever created that thousands of years ago was trying to immortalize that person because they saw the beauty in that. And they create a statue or a painting or whatever. So I bring her to the museum. I go, let's go see the China wing. Okay. Oh, it's beautiful. Well, let's go see, you know, um, the Eastern cultures. Let's go see that. Then finally, when she gets a little bored, I'm like, let's go and check out this one. I got to show you this one thing. And it's that little ugly statue. And if she says, that tells me everything. But if you see that and then get a tear in your eye, or if you see it and says to me, that's beautiful, then you're the one. <laughs> and to me, it's the same thing in that foghorn, you know? Nobody identified with that, that creature, and I'm doing the same thing. And that still was my test, you know, that I always still do that at some point. If you can see that beauty, because I kept thinking, whoever made that statue, that painting or whatever, did it in an attempt to immortalize that person, you know? Mm -hmm. That person didn't see the exterior. That person said the, saw the struggle of that person and said, I'm going to make something that will capture your spirit that I want everybody to know who you are. And to walk right by and say, that's ugly. Get it is dismissive of the creator and the creation. So I always use that as a test to walk over. And the minute somebody says, if you can find the beauty in that, in that purpose, in that creation, I know you're the one. But there's no ring on my finger yet. <laughs> so, but I read the foghorn and I think the same thing. You know, if you could read the foghorn and you identify with the creature instead of the human, and that's where I kind of thought, Eric came from I was like wow dude you really opened yourself up and said I'm willing to be vulnerable I'm willing to be wrong you know and read this and I was just astounded by that you know the level of empathy you must have and then he took that and then said what about the minorities in my culture how do they feel do they feel like this culture do they feel like the creature and that's where I was like, dude, this guy is that, you you know, you may be a better psychologist than me. That is astounding with the level that you can do from a short little, from a short little, you know, book. So when I see people like that, and he's way out there in Russia, and I never even been there, that gives me a lot of hope, because of the fact that I think that he's not the only one. I think you guys have it. Andrea, Colleen, Mr. Diaz has it. I think you all have that. So the thing is, when I leave, I feel inspired by it. That's what makes me feel. 
that I kind of think that, you know, there is the beauty of this text that we had, the foghorn, that maybe pulled out the character from my friends over there, Colleen, Andrea, and Mr. Diaz. So the book actually showed me a little bit about your heart, and that's the great gift of Ray Bradbury. That's an awesome way to say it. <laughs> Thank you for, for that. <laughs> yeah, actually, the Russia is, um, society is very conservative in many different ways, and towards homosexuality is a horrible situation there. Like, uh, I've been in, in Moscow and in St. Petersburg, and what Eric says is it fits what I, what I experienced there is that. Even young people that you will think that they are more open-minded and see towards certain topics with a very liberal point of view is quite the opposite. And it's kind of sad because at the end of the day, what that means is that there's people that suffer and have to hide and have a lot of internal problems because of how their society rejects them. So let's hope that in the future that will slowly get better. Yeah, so it's like you are the creature in the foghorn. You yeah. have to go hiding in the society. In your own society, you are the creature in the foghorn. Yeah. And it's just sad. It's sad wherever you are in the world, when you live in a society, that that society doesn't respect your potential. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that as much as you want to go and get educated or contribute or volunteer, or do something to help the country that you love, and they don't respect your potential, that's just and they label you or whatever, you know? But how would we not know that whether this person is gay or not or whatever could be one of the greats? How do I not know that this person we might be studying about, my kids might be studying about this person in their school? How do I not know? But I don't, and that's the beauty of it because that's why we have to recognize everybody's potential because everybody has the potential to be great. Yeah. No, I think we put labels on people and because of who or what they are or whatever that then inhibit that they actually are able to come to their full potential, lead a full life, you know? So, yeah. In, um, in Shelley, if you ever read Shelley's Frankenstein. I'm not. You know, I read the movie, but a long time ago. I never read the yeah, movie. The yeah, the book, book because, is really, it's really, really good. I think because yeah, because the shock is the creature doesn't have a name. Frankenstein is named after the creator, Doctor Victor Frank Frankenstein. The creature doesn't have the dignity of even getting a name. Yeah. <laughs> so and and much like in the foghorn, there is it's just this beast underwater. I don't know what it is. You know, it's nothing. There's no identity. You know the characters' names but that creature is just the creature. Yeah. There's something about not giving it, yet that, that um, the person is familiar with it because the creature keeps coming around every year, all the time around this time. Doesn't name it, doesn't give any kind of identity or anything to it, and yet somehow figures out that he can attribute the motives and behavior of it. So it's really it's really shocking, and I think that's something that we have to worry about as human beings that that idea that somehow we could be the experts and diagnose and stuff whether it be people or whether it be you know sitting there watching a, a nature documentary that somehow we're the experts because we're the highest in the food chain 
you know? And I've seen in, in throughout also in our history here in America, there's a lot of this American arrogance mm-hmm. and stuff and everything. And we got to keep that in check, you know? So that's the worst part of us. But if you know that's the worst part of us, then you know not what not to become. Mm. By the way, also from this whole meeting, I just realized I would sound 20% smarter if I had Mr. Diaz's accent. <laughs> really? <laughs> Sorry. Americans, Americans, they just love the accents, you know, so I just had to go, and they'd be like, damn, dude. What book? Do you read those books? No, man. To be honest with you, I just look at the pictures. That's it. I'm like, that's a cool little picture. Wow, a CAT scan. That's all I really am doing, really. I don't really do any of that stuff. But if I had an accent and I had a little, you know, eloquent, they'd be like, wow, dude. (laughs) Americans love accents over here. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Mr. Diaz. The no, moment I feel that the conversation gets really serious and deep, I go, you got to inject a little levity into that, you know, because yeah. otherwise people will be like, yeah, I got to go. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, no, they're, they're, very good, little... they're very good at yeah. that, to bring some humor into the, into the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I think it's about time that we start uh, wrapping it up. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Jake, to have you today with uh, with us because Colleen and Andrea are the usual suspects, but I hope that we can see you again too. We are discussing next week Station Eleven, which is um, a novel very related to, to what is happening to on us. On Sunday, now. right? On Sunday, yeah. And then on late July, we have This is How You Lose the Tango, which is a very short novella and it can be read uh, quite fast. So hopefully... Mr. Diaz is... It? Sorry. Yeah. No, is yeah, still we can see that. Is it still online, Mr. Diaz? Yes, all of them are going to be online until further notice. If you guys ever come to America, there are some great museums. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my thanks to uh, Mr. Diaz, Colleen, Andrea, and everybody who participated. It really was a joy in my heart to learn from you. I can't get a plane ticket to go there, so this is the next best thing, but you guys opened my eyes a bit. You made me a better person for getting me thinking. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing that. You know, it's it's nice to be educated. Thank it's you for pleasure. doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. See you next thank time. Thank you, everyone. Bye. See you next time. Night.